Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Dimez. And I'm Daniel Almaguer. And today's topic is a big question. Is there life out there? Out where? Everywhere. Like Like the cosmos. I mean, like beyond humans and Earth life. Earth life forms. Is there life love, out there? I would love to find out. In Everyday Apologetics, we'll hear from Gavin Ortland, who's going to share how Carl Sagan strengthened his faith. That's a fascinating topic. I'm really excited to hear that one. Mm-hmm. In Science Faith Connection, Jeff Sorenk will talk with Fuzzle Rana about the hand of God in life's origin. First up is going to be Culture Talk. Sandra here will be interviewing Dr. Hugh Ross, asking the question, is there life elsewhere? So let's go ahead and check it out. Now it's time for Culture Talk, where we talk about culturally relevant topics that you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I'm joined today with astrophysicist Hugh Ross. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, my pleasure. We're going to be talking about an exciting topic, something that a lot of people wonder about, and that is, is there life out there? So as you know, as everybody knows, the James Webb Space Telescope released these beautiful pictures and people were both fascinated and also had a ton of questions, even some things of feeling both significant and insignificant. So much um, resulted from just looking at the vastness of the cosmos, um, particularly the image of the deep field. So I'm gonna um, read it here. It says, that image portrays a tiny sliver of the universe equivalent to the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. So when we saw that image and saw all of the galaxies in that tiny little sliver of the universe, people thought um, a lot of things. There are so many thousands and thousands of galaxies that led to a bunch of different questions for them. But I want to know, what were your initial thoughts? Well, you know, I posted four of those images Mm -hmm. on my social media pages. Mm generated over a thousand questions. So I've been busy answering all the questions that I've been getting from people. Nothing I've ever posted before has generated that kind Mm. of a response. And I think what blew people away is just looking in the background of the images and just Mm. seeing thousands and thousands of very distant galaxies. And basically they realized, wow, this universe is a whole lot bigger than I ever imagined. Mm -hmm. So I was able to explain to them, yeah, but make it the tiniest bit bigger, we wouldn't be here make it the tiniest bit smaller, we wouldn't be here. And James Webb has really shown that to lay people in a way that the Hubble couldn't do. In fact, I would show the Hubble image side by side with the James Webb image, Mm -hmm. and it's just a mind blower how much more we can see Mm -hmm. with the James Webb Space Telescope and the beauty of it all. So the heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, if you live here in LA like we do, Mm -hmm. you might see 30 stars in a clear night. (laughs) But with a James Webb telescope, we can see billions of galaxies. Yeah, it, I, I still think about it and think of how breathtaking it was. But, you know, it, it brought a lot of people to wonder. It's, the questions here are, how can we possibly believe that we are alone? And I remember reading that and going, that's a, that's a good question. Because if that's just a sliver of the galaxies, how do we know? How, do we, how can we assume that we are alone? Another question that came up. Um, is that some people um, think that it's naive or even arrogant to think that we are alone in the universe, that surely we are not alone. Um, is it possible to know whether we're alone or not? Well, it depends what you mean by being mm-hmm. alone. 
you know, astronomers have this rare earth doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, which is the idea that earth is likely alone in its capacity to support advanced life, mm -hmm. but it may not be alone in its capacity to support a primitive bacterium. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about sharing the universe with a bacterium, yeah, maybe we're not alone. Mm -hmm. Well, that question is still up there. Maybe this is the only place where you only have bacteria. But everywhere we look in the universe, and James Webb is really bringing this out, everywhere we look beyond Earth, we see conditions that are hostile mm -hmm. for advanced life, but not necessarily hostile for a few microbes existing for a short period of time on another planet. And James Webb has not yet been used for this purpose, but one of its big goals is to look at the chemistry of planets orbiting other stars and to see whether the chemistry there has the appropriate uh, composition and abundances to make possible the existence of bacterial life. Mm -hmm. That's one of its main objectives. Wow. So yeah. we'll, we'll see. I think within a couple of years we're going to know the answer, whether there's bacteria out there. But one of the things I reveal in my latest book, uh, Design to the Core mm -hmm. here, is that when we look at the very large scale structure of the universe, mm -hmm. we see these super, super clusters of galaxies. They're not candidates for advanced life for a variety of reasons, mm -hmm. but a super cluster of galaxies might be. But we live in the only super cluster of galaxies that we've seen so far that has the appropriate characteristics to make advanced life possible. Then we zoom in to the cluster of galaxies we belong to and we see that it's unique. We zoom into the local group that we're part, local group of galaxies. We see no other local group that's like ours mm -hmm. with the characteristics to make advanced life possible that extends to our galaxy. We've looked at galaxies far, far away. None of them are candidates. Mm -hmm. And so on all size scales, from the very largest size scales all the way down to our star, our moon, the system of planets, even the system of asteroid and comet belts, they all have unique features that we see nowhere else in the universe that make possible our existence. And then there are astronomers who basically have determined maybe advanced life after us, mm -hmm. but we have to be the first on the scene because we're here at the bare minimum time mm. in the history of the universe. It's not possible to bring advanced life earlier in the history of the universe uh, than where we are right now, uh, which means that if there's life elsewhere, they would have to be sending a signal to us mm -hmm. that takes time and that's ruled out. They can't be earlier than us, they must be later than mm -hmm. us. So maybe in the future we won't be alone, but right now we're alone if we're talking physical intelligent life. Well, you said maybe in the future. So like in the future, we're, let's say we're here and, and... Well, what I mean by the future is say mm -hmm. like a, a half billion years into the future, <laughs> which by that I probably time, won't be here, but you know... Well, not only will you not be here, <laughs> there'll be no life here because mm -hmm. the sun's getting brighter and brighter. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it won't be long before it's so bright that photosynthetic life will not be possible. So I mentioned that this book, that happens in just a couple mm -hmm. of a million years. Yeah. Well, my question was going to be like, what would happen if life does exist elsewhere, intelligent life exists elsewhere, how would that affect a Christian worldview? Well, it would have no effect at all because, uh, you know, just like we see supernatural design to make our existence possible, mm -hmm. there's nothing preventing the creator of the universe from supernaturally designing another place in the universe. That could be, it's just that we haven't found such a location yet. 
And Christians have been debating this for 2,000 years. It's not a new debate. Mm -hmm. And there have been people on both sides saying, well, God seems to really love creating. He's not going to stop at one planet. Mm -hmm. And there's others who say God only needs one planet to fulfill his ultimate purpose. So you've got people on both sides. I think we always will have Christians on both mm -hmm. sides because you really can't scientifically rule out uh, God supernaturally intervening in a place where we haven't looked. Yeah. Well, you know, I... I've heard you tell stories about hosting stargazing nights and how regardless of people's worldview, they all are in awe when they stare up at the night sky and it leads to those big questions. How do you engage those questions and share your Christian worldview? Well, it's one thing to go online mm -hmm. and see a Hubble Space yeah. Telescope image or a James Webb Space mm -hmm. Telescope image. It's a completely different experience when you actually look through a telescope and see it with your eye through the telescope. And people are just in awe of what they see and it just leads to questions. Right. So I frequently will set up my telescope on some high mountain range. Cars will drive by, they see the telescope, they stop, they get out. Mm. So uh, we engage uh, strangers in considerable numbers uh, just through that and it always leads to philosophically significant right. discussions. Are we here? What's beyond the universe? Uh, what's my purpose in this vast universe? Questions like that. You know, um, in addition to Design to the Core, you have another book that I think is wonderful in addressing some of those questions. They're why questions, and it's yes. called Why the Universe is yes. the Way It Is. That one, I think, is very helpful, because I know for me, as an LA native, I didn't see a lot of stars. I certainly didn't see the galaxy until I went and left the state, and I looked up in the sky, and I saw the well, Milky Way. good news, way. Sandra. <laughs> a 40-minute drive from here, mm -hmm. you can get high enough up and away from the city lights where you can see the Milky Way with an naked eye. I'll, I'll need the map for that. But okay. <laughs> the first time I saw it, I felt so small. And, yes. and I was in, in complete awe. And your book is really helpful, I think, in helping address those why questions. Because it's like, why are we so small here in this vast, vast universe. So thank you so much for helping unpack this a little bit. Again, for, for viewers, if you want more, go to support.reasons.org. You can get Dr. Ross's book, Designed to the Core. And I would also recommend his book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. I'm joined today by Dr. Gavin Ortland. Gavin is one of our visiting scholars here at Reasons to Believe. Gavin, an interesting idea uh, that I have sometimes with my students is, can we learn things from non-Christians? Mm. And I know you have an interesting story about uh, the astronomer Carl Sagan. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I went to his book, Contact, which is the best-selling uh, science book in the English language of all time. Wow. And uh, I, I wanted to just learn from uh, that perspective. You know, he's, uh, he's kind of an iconic figure among um, more scientifically skeptical type people. Sure. Uh, he's, uh, you know, his, Neil deGrasse. Video Cosmos. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hugely influential and, and lots of people look up to him as kind of a grandfather type figure in that, in those yeah. circles. Neil deGrasse Tyson, I was just watching this morning his tribute to Carl Sagan. Yeah. Um, he's very respected. So I thought, what better book to go to, to just sympathetically listen okay. to that worldview. Um, so you're, you're actually 
intending to listen to a skeptical perspective. Yes, exactly. I want to, you know, Atticus Finch in the book To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. talks about um, how you never understand someone until you see the world through their eyes. Okay. And I think that's a really powerful point to consider when we're doing apologetics or any kind of dialogue, yeah. you know, just really being a good listener. So trying to be a good listener to Carl Sagan, and uh, I was shocked by what I heard hmm. because this novel, um, you know, it was made into a movie in 1997 uh, with Matthew McConaughey and Jodie Foster, and, um, and then it was published in 1980. So some of the things that I'm going to reference were carried over into the movie, but some things weren't. Okay. Um, but there's the main character named Ellie, and she's a scientist. She's kind of a rationalist type person, and she has a conversation with aliens. I mean, the whole book is about contact with aliens. Right. And unlike most alien movies, the aliens are, are nice aliens. Okay. <laughs> They're not trying to destroy the earth or anything like that. Um, and her conversation with them is presented in a kind of spiritual way where the aliens become this kind of theological force. And it, it talks about how it, her conversation gives her transcendent joy. It gives her meaning. It's the most sacred experience she's ever had in her life. Wow. And so she's looking back on the rest of her life and she basically comes to the realization of um, it's, e it's been easier for me to make contact with these aliens than with the human beings right around me in my family. Oh boy. <laughs> so it's like the, the human heart is even harder to penetrate than these distant galaxies. And that already was a surprise to me, just based upon what I was expecting. But then um, her, her rationalism is sort of critiqued through the events of the novel because she's given no proof of this experience that she has. And so she cannot prove it to anybody. And um, she has to start coming to a more complicated view of things like faith and reason. And then the thing that really shocked me the most is at the very end of the book when basically you realize the aliens are not replacing God. So even though they're taking on a kind of spiritual role, um, they ultimately point backwards to something behind themselves. And that happens in a couple of ways. One of them is that the transit system of wormholes that allow these different alien species to have contact, um, nobody knows who built it. Oh, it's just wow. always been there. And then one of the ideas in the book is that the number pi, so if people remember that from their math class in high school or whatever, yeah. it's like the 3.14 something else in repeating. Yes, yes. So he, he has the idea that embedded in that number is this code that enables them to build machines that you know travel through the wormholes and that kind of thing. And so, and, and then in the last three sentences of the book, mm -hmm. it all kind of comes to a head, and the main character realizes that standing behind both the aliens and the human beings, there is um, an artistry written into the universe, and there's an intelligence mm -hmm. that predates the universe. And it sounds wow. kind of like what I would call a teleological argument, or an argument from design. And I did not see that coming from Carl Sagan. Yeah. And I found it really intriguing that even here, what it, it did for me is, and I, because I don't want to speak to his intentions. Sure. I don't know what he intended exactly by that. But the way he's highlighting the importance of love, the importance of faith, and, and then the suggestion of God, to me, what it did is say, um, scientific progress is not displacing those questions. 
Because even here, within a, a relatively skeptical framework, and in a, a, a book about talking with aliens, those questions aren't sidelined. They're only amplified. You know, yeah. they're only made more poignant and more urgent. Yeah. And I just find that really striking. And I think when people have the perspective that science and scientific advance is replacing questions of faith, questions of philosophy, metaphysics, um, I find that a little bit superficial because the scientists and the, the skeptical scientists whom I respect the most give really respectful attention to those kinds of questions. And Carl Sagan is one like that. You know, it seems, Gavin, that we often think that the Christian and non-Christian, their worldviews will clash, and there's obviously a lot of that. But we also share things in common with non-Christians, the image of God, general revelation, mm -hmm. common grace. Um, do, you think, do you think we should view the non-Christian worldview as a mixed bag rather than just constant differences? Mm. It seems to me that we should. Um, you know, uh, all, all people are made in God's image, and all people live in God's world. And so yeah. there are constraints to um, our thinking and to life, and I think everybody will have true beliefs um, that we cannot help but have. And I think it helps in, in issues of apologetics and evangelism to try to do the listening first. I don't think the listening should replace a dialogue yeah. and talking back, but I think the dialogue will be better um, if we spend time really carefully listening first. Hello, Jeff Zwerink, and welcome to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we explore the latest scientific discoveries and see how they relate to the truth of the Christian faith. Today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Fuzz Rana, and we are going to explore what science has to say about the origin of life. Fuzz, good to have you here. Jeff, thanks. So I just, uh, you know, I mean, origin of life, that's one of these fascinating scientific questions. Mm -hmm. A lot of research done over many decades. Uh, just kind of, if you could take a couple of minutes and summarize, what is Reasons to Believe's position on the origin of life? Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, we would take the view that God created the very first life forms on Earth. So when we talk about the origin of life, we're referring specifically to the origin of the very first cells on Earth. So we would see that as the, the, the direct work of a creator. And if that's the case, then in our creation model, we make a number of predictions. You know, for example, that uh, the very first cells would likely appear suddenly on Earth. If it's a creation event, you would expect the cells to suddenly appear, you know, in the fossil record or evidence for the cells appear, appear you know, in the geological column in the geochemical record. You know, also, uh, we would expect the very first cells to be inherently complex and then also show evidence for design. And then in our creation model, we think that Genesis 1-2 is a passage that's making uh, a reference to the appearance of the very first cells on Earth. And in the book Origins of Life, we kind of unpack the reasoning behind mm -hmm. that. Well, if that's the case, then Genesis 1-2 gives us a depiction of the early earth, and that should be the setting in which life would originate. Mm -hmm. And so we can then compare the conditions of the earth when life appeared with what we see in scripture as a way to, to assess 
our model scientifically. So, you know, you wrote Origins of Life, I think back in 2004, I kind of had a follow-up book, uh, uh, Creating Life in the Lab, where you kind of flesh out some things in a little bit different. Uh, you know, it's been a decade or more since those books have come out. What are some of the significant developments that have come about since then? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, in, in Origins of Life, we kind of present our uh, creation model for the origin of life and show that the evidence seems to align with what our model predicts. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the book is really critiquing different chemical evolutionary scenarios for the origin of life, showing that none of them work. Mm -hmm. And then creating life in the lab uh, picks up on that theme, uh, but also uh, goes one step further and makes the case that the work that people have done in synthetic biology where they're trying to create protocells or uh, the, the work that people have done in prebiotic chemistry where they try to go in the lab and replicate the different steps they think that led to the origin of life, all that work essentially demonstrates the necessary role of intelligent agency to bring about the transformation of chemicals into, you know, what we would call protocellular type entities. So, so you've got this scenario where in looking at origin of life, we can actually do some of the things that lead to the origin of life. So it's not like we've just got this kind of, it's like miraculous, there's no way to explain right. it type thing. So we can get a handle on what's going on, but you argue that still points towards a creator. Why so? Well, well because uh, in, in effect, you have to have um, uh, intelligent agency as being a critical aspect of, of that process. So you have uh, uh, reactions that you would execute in a mm -hmm. laboratory or different types of chemical or physical processes that are done under highly controlled conditions, executed by highly skilled researchers following very elaborate strategies. You know, that, that, that the laboratory setting uh, is, it, it produces results only because the researchers have, in effect, introduced <laughs> their activity into the experimental design, uh, making intelligent agency a critical component of that process. So, so one of the early experiments that goes on this Yuri Miller type experiment, you know, you put a bunch of gases, liquids in a jar, shoot sparks in it, you get amino acids out, kind of points to mm -hmm. things just happening naturalistically. Is this sort of intervention going on there? Or, I mean, cause that seems pretty much just kind of let's replicate the early earth and let it go. Yeah, well, but the thing is, in, in a sense, the early Earth isn't, you know, replicated in that experiment in the sense that you have these highly controlled conditions. In order to get that reaction to work, you have to very carefully adjust the concentrations of ammonia mm. and methane and hydrogen, you know, in the headspace. You have to, you know, make sure oxygen is excluded. You know, so in other words, you're creating this highly artificial, highly contrived atmospheric conditions. And and by the way, most people today don't think the Miller-Urey experiment was relevant because the the gaseous conditions that he employed uh, isn't what we now know mm -hmm. to be the gaseous conditions on the early Earth. But the the point there is that it only works because it's a highly contrived, very carefully controlled system where everything has been rigged, if you will, from the onset to make 
uh, that experiment work or to have for that experiment to have any chance of working. So the idea that uh, scientists just go, you know, dump some alcohol, dump some ammonia, put it all in, throw sparks in, and you get stuff out, that's really not an accurate picture of what's going no, on. No, not at all. And in fact, you know, one of the most intriguing developments in original life research is the recognition of what's called unwarranted researcher involvement. And so this was really the concept that we were bringing across in the book, Creating Life in the Lab, in, in 2011. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, a, a German original life researcher published a, a perspectives piece where he essentially brought up the same points we brought up in Creating Life in the Lab, that many of the experiments done in prebiotic chemistry are highly contrived experiments where they, the, they are rigged in such a way to ensure the success of the experiment, but they don't really translate to the conditions of the early earth. They, they lack what uh, researchers would call geochemical relevance. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so Reichert refers to this as the hand of God dilemma, that, that we are in effect stepping in and are assuming the, the, the role of an intelligent agent that is in a sense uh, ensuring the successful outcome of the experiments. And on the early earth, you don't have that level of control, that level of intervention. And so what we do in the lab very well may not have any relevance to uh, what actually uh, uh, could have transpired under the conditions of the early earth. So, uh, you know, it's, it seems to make sense that these reactions only kind of arise in very specific situations or specific conditions. You got the early earth there. I mean, there's a lot of surface area, a lot of water, fair bit of time. Wouldn't these things just kind of, wouldn't you expect it to happen somewhere on the early earth or, or is it more? Well, it's not to say that the chemical reactions that have been discovered in the lab would never occur on the early earth. It's just that they would never be productive. Okay. Right. That, 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 you know, for example, many of the experiments that are done are done under what I would call chemically pristine conditions where you have the, the two reactants or the three reactants that you're interested in studying. Mm -hmm. You know, you're excluding every other uh, chemical species that likely would have been present on the early earth, but you're excluding mm -hmm. it from the experimental design. But if you actually included those chemical materials, the likelihood of, of that chemistry actually taking place in a productive way is, is highly unlikely and because these other materials would basically interfere with the, the chemistry, would create side reactions or consume the reactants or in, and things like that, or in turn react with the product as soon as it's formed. So the, you, you create these controlled chemically pristine conditions in the lab, the experiment works, but you know, even though the earth, surface of the earth is vast and there's a lot of environments the likelihood of this being productive and meaningful for chemical evolution, you know, would be extremely unlikely. Well, thanks, Fuzz. I really appreciate your comments. You know, the origin of life is one of those topics where in Scripture we see God being the author of all life. And, you know, as Fuzz referred to in Genesis 1-2, we see intimations of that in the spirit hovering over the surface of the water. And what's remarkable is as we go out and study and look at creation and try and understand how life started here on earth, we find that the biblical description matches and we really do see evidence 
that without a mind behind it, it's not going to happen. You know, I would encourage you to go to reasons.org. Fuzz has written a great article on this topic called Prebiotic Chemistry and the Hand of God. Go check out that article so that you can understand how researcher intervention is so important and how that points to God being the creator of life here on Earth. We hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith, compassion, and confidence. And don't forget, subscribe to the show. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819show. And you know what? What did you think of this episode? I thought it was great because I've always wondered if life did exist on different planets or if it's somewhere out there in space. Like, is that even possible? Yeah, and then what does that mean for our worldview? Like, we toss it out the window. Like, how do we um, right. engage with that? Mm-hmm from a Christian perspective. That's a great point. So we hope you enjoyed it. If you would like the audio version of the show, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other major podcast services. Just search Reasons to Believe Podcast. See you next week. See ya.